everyone. We're going to talk a little bit. We're in between um, series. We're going to start our next series next week. I was waiting on some resources to arrive, and I got here this morning and saw the resources on my desk. And so we're going to start the study of the book of Philippians next week. And so I'm looking forward to jumping into that as a follow-up to our study of the book of Colossians. Uh, so this morning, I just want you to turn with me to uh, Genesis, the book of Genesis. Why don't you go ahead and turn over to around Genesis uh, chapter 27. We're going to spend most of our time in Genesis 32, but we're going to do just kind of a brief flipping over through the, the, the chapters, kind of looking at the headings to kind of do a quick overview this morning. Uh, this morning, we're talking about notes from the wilderness I don't know about you, but if I look at my own spiritual autobiography, my notes from the wilderness is by far the biggest section so far. And, um, and the more I talk with people, I know that many people experience that reality. So we're going to talk about an event that took place in Jacob's life. But even though we're talking about Jacob, as you overlay this story on many of the other uh, characters in the scriptures, particularly those who went through some sort of transformation before becoming uh, either leaders or used by God in some way, there are similarities to the patterns of their lives. And one of the most important similarities is, is this, and I think it's interesting because when we hear testimonies in church and so forth about people who have come to the Lord, there's this idea that there's this time kind of, of, of wandering and lost and sin and so forth. Sorry, my cord keeps moving around here. It doesn't know what to do if I tuck in my shirt. And I understand because I feel similar. But no, I don't, I am not having to uh, go to any kind of uh, serious meeting afterwards. I just, this was clean. And uh, uh, so, um, but, but one of the things that, that, that you'll see in these patterns, so, so anyway, so, so uh, the idea that I got in growing up is that life is a mess, and then you come to know Jesus, and then life gets progressively better. And that's kind of the narrative that was sold to me, and I think to a lot of the folks that I sat in youth group with. But I don't know why we fell for that, because if you start looking through your Bible, that is not all, that's not at all what the journey looks like. And the truth is, you, yes, you may be in chaos, and yes, you may come to Christ, and yes, there may be a temporary time of great celebration because you're coming out of chaos into this new grace. But the truth is, you still have to walk through your own journey of disappointment and suffering. And for me, because I came to Christ at such a young age, by far the most devastating parts of my life happened after I was walking with Jesus. And because I came to uh, faith at such a young age, my world, for as long as I can remember it, remember it, has been saturated by the presence of Christendom or involvement in some sort of church and, and, and developing my own relationships in the body of Christ. And so for me, um, people who follow Jesus have inflicted the most devastating wounds of my entire life. I'm talking about the wounds that dug down deep, caused me to question my vocation, my calling, caused me to question who I am that caused me to have to go through a process of grieving, that caused me to have to process my bitterness and rage toward them, those, none of that has ever happened from non-followers of Jesus. All that has happened to me from people who profess to follow my Lord. And I'm pretty sure that there is somebody out there that can tell a story where I was used to harm them in the process. And so, but, but we don't get set up for that. But what I want you to see is the progression is we can be called by God and we can be saved and the Spirit's working in our lives, but it really, to me, the, the, the celebration point in these stories isn't coming to faith because most of these people, by the time we pick up their story, they are born into the community of faith. So, you know, like for Israel, you didn't like get born and then one day they hoped that you would get saved and become a true Israelite. No, you were part of God's kingdom. You were part of God's covenant community just by be virtue of being born an Israelite. But as you can see, all of these people, even then salvation is bestowed in the way we understand it. Salvation, they experience it from the moment of their birth. And yet they still have to go through an identity transformation. So when I'm talking with people, it's not just, I'm not just trying to hear, sorry, their stories about when they came to faith in Christ. What I'm really interested in is tell me about how the loss of your kingdom happened. Tell me about that part of your journey where, 
where, where you begin to question everything and everything started shaking and things started falling apart. And then that process, you had to cling to Jesus and you emerged out of there with a new identity. We could even maybe say that you were given a new name. And those are the stories I'm really interested in this season of my life of hearing people and, and, and being a conversation partner to help walk them through those and, and, and just kind of say and learn about where the spirit was at each part of that journey. And you'll see this idea, this happens to Jacob as we're gonna look, look at, this happens to David. I mean, we, we could go on and on. The other significant character this happens to is Paul. And what I like about Jacob and Paul is both of their stories are symbolized by the change of their nature equating to a change of their name. So somewhere Saul becomes Paul and somewhere Jacob the supplanter becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God and men and prevails. And so looking at those journeys become very instructive to our own personal journeys in this process. And so I wanna invite you as we, as we kind of peer into Jacob's life this morning to be thinking about some of the parallels that you might discern in your own story as you've walked through this. And so everybody has this conflict. Now, right now, a popular word for it is deconstruction. And, and deconstruction is a word that for some people that makes them come alive and makes them feel liberated. Other people hear the word deconstruction and they start to feel fear feel fearful because it's a time when people reevaluate their faith beliefs and sometimes the result isn't what their church of origin would have hoped for them. So I don't really care for the word. I mean, the, the word deconstruction is fine, but it's one of those words that has so many uh, so much um, emotional baggage attached to it that, that I don't use it as much. I like what the ancients called it because my friends, this is not a new phenomenon. Every faithful follower of Jesus have been walking through these process where they, they've got questions and they reevaluate their convictions and they come out on the other side different. What the ancients used to call it was the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. And all the devotional writers Testify. They all have writings about this season when you enter in this time of darkness where your faith is shaken. And what happens is everything that can be shaken is shaken and you emerge not standing on the rock, but clinging to the rock. And you're transformed and your name is changed and the direction of your life is altered forever. So let's talk a little bit about that process, dark night of the soul. So when Jacob comes on the scene, Jacob comes on the scene, and, and the, the, I don't want to go through every detail, so I'm going to pick it up when we start seeing his character. You know, he came out grasping a hold of Esau's ankle, and he was named Jacob. He was the supplanter. And as we look at the tension of these two siblings, uh, there's quite a bit of it. So one of the first stories we might be familiar with is in Genesis chapter 27, I believe it is, and that's when you know, Esau comes in as the firstborn with the birthright of the firstborn, and he's hungry, and he doesn't want to wait and prepare his game and make a stew, and says, Jacob, you've got a nice stew going on, and uh, he, he, why, why, why don't you give me some stew? And then Jacob, you know, he's, he's working the system. I mean, Jacob works the system all the way through until the system works him. And, uh, and so he says, well, I'll tell you what, you can have a nice, fresh pot of this stew. And it's red stops, stop stew. I even got some chili to put on top of it. And we're getting into red top stew weather. I'm so excited. And just remember, my pastoral is advice, always buy Zesta, never premium. But anyway, um, uh, that'll change your life, I promise you. Uh, what was I talking about? I'm sorry, I got so freaking red top stew. I know, thank you. So, so, so he's like, you know, you have some of this stew. He said, but I want your birthright for it. And then there's that story of Esau for this momentary relief of suffering. He sells out his birthright, which is in some sense giving away his destiny to his younger brother. And so once he's full and realizes what has happened already, there's some, there's some tension there between the two brothers. And then it just gets worse as we move into, I believe it's, yeah, at the end of 27. Oh, it's all throughout 27 and on into 28. I'm sorry, 27 is not where he steals his birth. His, 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 that's where he sells his blessing. The birthright happened earlier in the story. This is the one where Jacob comes in and, and uh, Isaac says, look, I'm getting old. Esau, you're my son. I want to give you your, your blessing. And uh, so why don't you go out, hunt some meat, prepare it, 
make it tasty like I like it and bring it back here and I'll eat it and I'll give you the blessing. Rebecca overhears that and so her favorite son is Jacob. So she says, hey, I'm going to make your dad's best meal and uh, I want you to give some goats for me to prepare it. And um, then the, she puts, you know, the, the, the goat skin on him because he's hairy. And he comes into the tent and Isaac's suspicious. He's not sure this doesn't seem like Jacob. In fact, the text says that Isaac says, well, uh, he feels like Jacob, but, but his, his voice is, um, I mean, Esau, but his voice sounds like Jacob. So he goes through the whole thing and the deception works. And Jacob's pretty afraid of it. Not because he wants to do the right thing, but what he tells his mom is this. He says, hey, if dad finds out I'm doing this, I'm toast. And she's, she's like, don't worry. He's not going to figure it out. So when he leans in close to, um, close to um, Isaac, Rebecca had clothed Jacob in Isaac's favorite clothes. And it's when Jacob smells the clothes, he says, oh, okay, I know for sure this is Esau. So he gives the family blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. And then, of course, you know the story. Um, Esau comes in later, and he's ready for the blessing, and he's brought the meat and the, and the dish. And Jacob, and then uh, um, Isaac is devastated because he realizes what has happened. And Esau weeps loudly, and um, Jake, uh, Isaac gives Esau what blessing he can. But at the end of the day, the blessing's been given to Jacob, and Esau will serve Jacob. And uh, so this makes Esau very unhappy. And the story, as the story goes, this kind of plays off of kind of a binary of an alpha and beta male in some ways, because, you know, uh, Esau is hairy and he goes out and he hunts things and, ah, and it says that Jacob is smooth and he's soft and, you know, and, and so they create this juxtaposition. So here's the thing, but Jacob's way smarter than Esau. And, um, so he knows he can't best him in a physical altercation. So, so uh, his, his mother, uh, Rebecca says, you need to go to my brother's house, your uncle Laban, and you need to flee there. And then when Esau cools off and he no longer wants to slaughter you, I will send word and you can come back home. So then we follow Jacob as he travels to um, the land of Laban and he meets his uncle and then you kind of know the story. He falls in love with the younger sister, Rachel, and he says, I'll work for seven years. The end of the seven years, he's supposed to get Rachel and be married and he's deceived. He wakes up the next morning and uh, Leah is his wife uh, or Leah is his wife. And Leah's story is really a tragic one. If you go through the whole thing, it just is heartbreaking to read her side of the story, particularly with not being within that culture so we've got different sensibilities when we read it. But um, <clears throat> so then he says, Laban, what's up? And Laban says, well, look, this is not our custom. We always marry off the older and then the younger, but work seven more years. And you can, so now he's got these two wives and he's there and, and he begins to prosper under Laban. Laban prospers, but Laban prospers because of Jacob. And then there's some really bizarre stories where Jacob comes up with the scheme of saying, hey, listen, all the solid pure sheep and goats are yours and all of the striped livestock is mine. And, and the, the Bible story is fascinating because what Jacob does is he strips bark off of uh, wood. And so if he puts uh, striped bark where the animals are, uh, go to water and mate, then they produce striped offspring. So it shows in here that even though God's plan is to, to, to direct and bless Jacob, he still can't trust the process. And he's constantly practicing these schemes to try to get ahead and kind of move into that place of God's blessing. And, and they, there are consequences to it, but one of the consequences is not God revoking his intention toward Jacob. He continues to be blessed and prosper. And so finally he decides that it's time for him to leave Laban, go back to his father's land. And as he does, he knows it's several, you know, 20 years have passed. And he doesn't know if Esau's still angry or not, but he clearly assumes that he is. So the, his whole household leaves and they travel to go back to Esau. And then men give word to Jacob and say, guess what? He knows you're coming and he's got an army of 400 men with him. So Jacob is petrified, so much so that he divides his camp up, his wives and, and his, um, his, many, his, his four wives and his servants and his livestock. He divides it all up and says, let's all go in separate directions so at least maybe a part of our group will survive and escape when Esau comes to slaughter us. And then he has the idea that he sends out caravans to Esau with gifts of livestock. 
And every time a servant comes up to Esau, they say, this is from your servant Jacob. He wanted to give this to you as a gift. He's hoping that you will look favorable upon him. And so Jacob, all of this is going on, and Jacob is waiting to see how this is going to all turn out. And then we get in chapter 28, and what happens is Jacob finally sends the rest of his household across the river at night, and Jacob comes back, and he's camping all by himself on the other side of the river. This man is petrified. He is scheming in hopes that at least a fourth of his prosperity will be preserved, but he He's kind of given up hope for three-fourths of it. And so he's, he's alone, and he's afraid, and he lays down to rest. And this is where um, uh, then a man shows up. And the man shows up, and well, the text seems to indicate that Jacob believes it's the man, and they begin to have a struggle together. And throughout that struggle, there's a revelation that this is more than a man that Jacob is wrestling with. So let's take a look real quick and look at the details of this significant event this evening uh, in the life of Jacob. The same night, I'm sorry, this is first Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face of God, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now, what's interesting about this story, this is clearly the story where he dies to a false identity and he is resurrected to a new identity. That's part of the journey that Jacob's on. This isn't the first supernatural encounter that he had. You guys remember some chapters back when Jacob is traveling and he falls asleep and he has the vision. You remember that? It's very famous Jacob's ladder where he sees the um, angels ascending and descending. And what's interesting is that the end of that, when he wakes up, here's what Jacob says. Surely God was in this place, but I did not. And he travels throughout his travel and his character transformation. And now, when God is in the place, Jacob recognizes it. Jacob knows. Jacob is assured, and Jacob knows what to do. So here in this story, which is so, I mean, go on the Google and read about theories of the story. Read about the background of the story, about the angel and the name and all of these. It's really fascinating, and I'm going to discipline myself to ignore all of that kind of fun, nerdy stuff this morning. But it is really interesting. But as we look at the overview of this story, instead of getting down, landing the plane, and looking at the forest, we're going to stay above it and look at it from above. What we see are these movements in this story. Number one, God wrestles with Jacob. Because it's clear that this is not a man, it's an angel, and it's an angel of the Lord. This is why his name is changed to one who wrestles with God and prevails. God wrestled with Jacob, and then God blessed Jacob. Out of that reality, the wrestling, God wounds Jacob, and in the process, God transforms Jacob. So God wrestled with Jacob, God blessed Jacob, God wounded Jacob, and God transformed Jacob. 
So let's look at those four movements of the story. Number one, God wrestled with Jacob. So Jacob now, as clearly as we've said, is at a point of significant transition. He's been out earning his, uh, building his empire and building his family for about 20 years, and now he's in transition to come back home. But clearly he fears for his life, and not just his life, but the life of his wives and children. Now, God already promised Jacob in his journey that through him he was going to build the nation and that, and that, his, and that his posterity would be numbered like the, you know, the, the stars in the sky. So Jacob has this promise. Clearly, Jacob is not a good charismatic word of faith guy because he's not standing on that and confessing that promise at all. He's scared to death and he's afraid that Esau is going to thwart God's good intention for his life. That's what he believes. So he's there afraid. He's afraid for his wife, for his children, but he's also afraid for his posterity, his name being cut off from the face of the earth. And so then alone in this darkness, we're not told how long he was there. We're not told what the, told what the scenario was. Did the man just appear? Did he walk up to Jacob? We don't know. But sometime in the night, as he's alone in the darkness, by the roar of the river, Jacob is confronted by what he seems to think there's a man, man in the beginning, and then they began to wrestle all night long, which of course had to be exhausting. The wrestling that we encounter is also exhausting, and it often happens in a dark night of the soul, and we feel very much alone. This is why it's so significant, all the details of this story, that, David's, that Jacob's by himself on a night of high fear and anxiety. That's when the wrestling happens. Because it always happens when the sp spot where our emotions are so bro broken down that all we see is despair. We can't see how God's promises, how God's good intention is ever going to come to fruition. And we wrestle there in that night. We wrestle in that season. And for Jacob, it was a night. For some of us, that didn't just last for 24 hours. It didn't just last for eight hours throughout the night. Some of us have been in that season for months or possibly even years as you get invited into the dark night of the soul. And all of a sudden, all the early optimism that you had for your faith, all this enthusiasm you had for God's promise, it's all gone. And in fact, you wonder if God actually even fulfills his promises at all. Or maybe you begin to ask yourself and you begin to reevaluate and then you undermine all your experiences of faith because you just put them in the category of emotionalism. Well, I was, you know, because, you know, because churches do emotionally manipulate. And once you recognize that, then it creates this conflict. Was that real or is that emotion? I mean, I used to take the kids to church camp to have their lives transformed where we caused them to be sleep deprived. They stayed out in the heat till they were near hydration. And then we got them in loud emotional services in the evening. And yes, great things happen. Now, I'm not saying God wasn't a part of that. But what I am saying is even if God's a part of that, when you get older and then reflect, you go, huh, was that really an experience with God or was I malnutritioned and dehydrated and exhausted and in a state where I could be easily manipulated? And that's a painful day for some of us because some of us made significant life-altering decisions in a time of emotion down at the altar. You know, we're, I mean, how many of you went to camp and either broke up with someone or got broken up with after camp? Always happened every year. Somebody was going to get broken up because God's into breaking people up uh, before he can use them. Or, you know, we, we, we made these life-altering decisions and set ourselves on a trajectory. And then when life began to fall apart and it did not happen the way we expected, the only thing you're left with is going, what really was all of that? Was all of it even real? So he is in this dark night. Now, here's the thing. As the story goes on, we recognize that this is not just a man. And as they're wrestling, at any moment, that man could have delivered himself from the struggle because eventually he does. But he chooses to stay there with Jacob in, in a way that Jacob almost thinks he's winning when we know by the end of the story there was never a chance that Jacob had. But the man could have won at any moment, but he chooses to invite Jacob into the struggle that will last all night and leave Jacob exhausted. Now, the man we come to understand was an angel of the Lord, and he's like, son, I could do this all day. I could do this all century. 
But he invites Jacob into this prolonged struggle and because it's not about the angel, it is about Jacob. And it is about the miracle that's gonna happen because Jacob becomes exhausted by the wrestling and it begins to alter Jacob. So then the question is, what about your season? In your season of, season of wrestling with God, you may feel as though you are lost and not sure that you will ever prevail or if you'll ever be found. And although God could make it short and sweet, he invites us into the struggle. He allows us to wrestle into the humility that is born from exhaustion. And here's the thing, in that wrestling, Jacob emerges with a new name, a new calling, a new vision, and a new identity, but he carries it not just with honor, but also with humility. A humility that wasn't present in Jacob's life in the first half. He had to build, break down, and rebuild. And this is the part of the story that's the miracle happens. It's the rebuilding that is happening within Jacob. And what about you? Have you wrestled with God in the darkness? Have you struggled deeply or are you struggling now? As you reflect upon your own life, in order to enter into their story and making it your story and see how the grace of God intersects in your life in similar ways that he did in the characters in the scriptures, as you think about that, what caused that season of darkness? Was it sin? It's almost as though in evangelical churches, you can talk about sin as long as you talk about it as a past tense struggle. Or if you talk about it as a present tense struggle over which you have lots of resolve to change. We like those conversations. But... The people that show up to accountability group week after week after week fail, fail, fail. I know because I was that member of the group. The group starts to get really uncomfortable and you have two choices. Leave the group or you just start lying when you show up. I've done both. Problem is, when you show up and lie, you start getting really good at it. And the better you get at it, the more isolated you become because no one knows you. Really, they're uncomfortable with knowing you in the completeness of your weakness and failure. So sometimes sin can shut us off and can be the reason why we go into the dark night of the soul. Now, for evangelicals, we wanna believe it's the only reason why we go into the dark night of the soul. Why? We can control that. Oh, if you don't want the dark night of the soul, don't sin, and then you'll remain happy. But sin's not the only thing that gets us there. Maybe it was just profound disappointment that you were raised with a vision of God that guaranteed certain things if you responded in certain ways. And then as you grew up, you kept your end of the bargain, but life did not turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out. And that disappointment creeps in and you're, you don't know what to have confidence in anymore. And so maybe it was a disappointment, something that happened, not maybe some, maybe it wasn't even under your control. Maybe it's because of the decisions of other people. And yet you entered into this season of deep grief and disappointment, or maybe it was loss. We, we um, used to do this test with folks called your emotional view of God. And one of the questions on that test was, if I mess up, I'm afraid God will. And, and the reason why when we're working with folks and we take that emotional view of God test, the reason why those questions are asked that way is that when you answer it, you're supposed to answer the way you feel in your worst moment, the moment when you have the least amount of faith. How, do you, how does your heart really view God? It is amazing. Do you know what by far now, this is anecdotal. This is just in our circle of, I don't know, three, 400 people that we've worked with through this test. But still, by far, the most common answer to if I, if I make God angry or if I mess up, I'm afraid he will, was 
take one of my children. By far the most common answer. Now think about that for just a moment. We're here every week saying, put your faith in God, put your faith with God, not realizing that on an emotional level, half the people are afraid that God might take their children if, he, if they don't do everything right. And some people have in fact lost children. And some people have in fact lost children and had that view of God and their faith communities reinforced it to them. I've sat and wept with those people. So what was it? Was it a loss that was so grievous that you thought this isn't a fair deal because I give a full 10% of my tithe and I go back to church on Sunday nights and I'm still suffering. This is not the promises that I was given by the evangelical gospel, which is trust Jesus, smooth upward sailing from here forward. I'm not sure that everyone actually says that, but saw a lot of us come away with that idea. So maybe it's profound, maybe it's deep loss. Maybe, maybe you just lost your way. The question is now, are you currently wrestling? And can you see that rather than being absent, God is actually present with you in the struggle? So God wrestles with Jacob, but then God blesses Jacob. So something happens to Jacob as the dawn awakens. He begins to comprehend the significance of what is happening. This comprehension leads to apprehension, and his tenacity is renewed as the daylight is coming. Suddenly, it is not enough to simply not lose Jacob is gripped with the longing to prevail and be blessed. This is when the emotional turning begins to happen. Before he's defending his life, now he doesn't want to just defend his life. He wants to win. He wants to prevail. And so now he's got a, his vision starts to broaden to where it's not enough simply to not lose, but he wants to prevail and be blessed. If you are willing to persist in the darkness, you will discover that eventually... Struggle has made you stronger and has altered your vision. Have you experienced this? Have you experienced the gradual shift from exhaustion to determination? Or are you still exhausted? The shift will happen. We move, we keep prevailing. We move from exhaustion to a place of determination. And we resolve that the struggle will not be the end of us question for you is, have you decided to press on and insist on being blessed? I'm not going anywhere, Lord. I'm staying right here. I've lost the sophisticated faith of adulthood, and I'm going back to something you suggested, which is to live life in the kingdom of God. You got to be like a child. All the sophistication has brought me lots of answers that have left me alone and in despair. And now, Lord, I'm ready. I don't have answers, but I can trust you. So in that process, Jacob then gets wounded. And this, my friends, is the paradox of the life of faith. Our healing is often disguised in our wounds. Jacob is blessed, but he is wounded and destined to walk with the limp for the rest of his days. But his limp, my friends, is a memorial of his prevailing. It is not a memorial of his failure. Jacob's limp is a memorial of his prevailing, not a memorial of his failure. The blessed Jacob is the limping Jacob. The limping Jacob is the blessed Jacob question is, how do you view your limp? Do you think of it as, as a reminder of your failure or as a memorial of your prevailing? Because only an encounter with God can transform your understanding. Now, some of us may have things that we were tempted to wrestle with, but we didn't do it. We boarded up those rooms and now they're very, very dark. The question this morning is, do you need to let God into those dark rooms that you've boarded up? Perhaps you've avoided the rooms in order to survive, but now it's time to face them in the presence of Jesus. Take off those boards and invite him into that place of darkness. I spent so much of my life embittered 
by certain experiences that I've encountered along the way. And again, I don't think it's unique because it's church. I think we all experience these. It's just that Christendom happened to be the atmosphere in which I grew. And there are memories that changed me forever. There were experiences that my faith could not go back to what it was before, and I grieved the loss of that innocence and that optimism, but I simply couldn't force it again because the experiences ran too deep. And I would be enraged against these memories. I would do all that I can to forget about those memories so that I don't slip into blaming God for them. And I remember those, those guys would show up on my front porch, those memories. They would bang, bang, bang. And I would be so scared and overwhelmed and I would lock the doors and I would lean up against them and I would pull out all my tricks. I would rebuke them in the name of Jesus, tell them to go away. I would try to cast them and remove them from my mind into the depths of the sea, all the techniques until I was just exhausted and despair and fell asleep and I would wake up and they'd, they'd gone on. But now my friends, I can hear them pulling into the driveway before I can see them and I unlock the door and they pull in and I open the door and I welcome them in and I go put on a pot of tea and I serve some scones and we all sit together and we talk as friends and sometime in that process, they're done and they get up and they peacefully walk out the door. I'm not exhausted, I'm not overwhelmed and my identity is no longer redefined by the negative way I process those before. Instead, I see the seeds of grace that I now give to other people that I could not do if it wasn't for those memories. They've become my friends. That is freedom. I didn't forget about them. And if I ponder all them, are they still gonna be painful? Yes, but they're recast in a completely different light in my own mind now because of God's faithfulness in using those things to bring me where I needed to be, which is what happens to Jacob. Jacob, God transforms Jacob. In addition to a limp, Jacob is given a new name. He goes from supplanter to one who is striven with God and man and prevailed. He is blessed with a brand new identity. And his new identity paves the way for a new destiny for both himself and his posterity. His new identity reveals a deeper friendship with God. I think I have these in your notes, but they'll be on the overhead. This is a really interesting progression. I just want to read three verses uh, where, where, where Jacob interacts with God in this journey. Now, just before, um, uh, just after the vision of Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28, verse 13, the, the Lord speaks to Jacob. Now notice how the words are constructed. Uh, and behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father and, and the God of, I'm sorry, I'm the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Jacob. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. So what has just happened there is the promise that was given to Abraham has now been given to Jacob. But Jacob still doubts it and thinks he's going to die before he sees this day being fulfilled. So then in Genesis uh, 31, just before the experience by the riverbed, before he wrestles and has his name changed, here's what Jacob says um, in verse, uh, Genesis 31, verse 42. Notice the wording again. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you'd have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. This is when he's talking about um, Laban being told, hey, better not go kill Jacob, my hands on him. Then we have the experience, the wrestling. And now look how Jacob talks about God in Genesis 35 verses one through three. Again, notice the construction of the language. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Notice verse one, that's very different from what God says in 28, 13, I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Egypt. Now he's saying, he's reminding, this is the God who appeared to you, Jacob, not Abraham, not Isaac, but to you. 
Verse two, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Let, uh, then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to the God who answers me. Not just the faith of the stories of the God who answered Abraham. Not just the faith of the stories of the God who answered Isaac. But this is an altar built to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Once you go through the dark night of the soul and you look back, all of a sudden your history is cast in a redemptive light and there's a redemptive story arc that you couldn't see when you were in the midst of it. But we get on the other side of this wider space and we can look and see there's been a prog progression here. I've gone from the faith of my father to my own faith. The faith of my God to my God. And so something deep happens in this process where now faith becomes internalized as a relational reality, a revelation that defines who Jacob is and how he lives from this point forward. Do you remember the day that the God of your father became your God? Do, do you remember the season that deepened your friendship with God? Or maybe you're on the cusp of that season, that day right now. Do you feel in your heart the tugging of the spirit, whispering your name and beckoning you, beckoning you to go deeper? Because we actually, this story of Jacob really does become all of our story. As I said before, one way of thinking of it is construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. Another way people have uh, uh, articulated it is that there's a revelation of the promise of God. Then it seems like life brings the exact reversal of the promise of God. And then through, after that season comes the fulfillment of the promise of God. Promise, reversal, and refillment. Construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Order, Disorder, reorder, whatever the words you use for it, can you discern the seasons in your own life? When we're in construction, now again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say these things just to cast a broad net and hopefully it connects with your story. This is not scientific and numbers and calendars were our idea, not God's. So I know it doesn't work this neatly in real life, but in general, when we're in our time of construction, particularly those of us who grew up evangelical, because evangelicals are really good at prioritizing the faith cultivation of their children. Um, in that time, simplistic answers work, particularly if you're in a smaller community to where you're never really required to interact with anyone who looks differently than you or believes differently than you, then those answers are just really simple to create guideposts for your life. Doctrine is easy. I mean, we rarely question it. I remember when I would hear doctrine that didn't set well with me, I was just told, well, it's okay if it doesn't set well. Take your questions and put them on the shelf and just trust God. And so I've learned to do that. And I'm just, well, I don't know. Everyone else seems fine with it. I'm not really fine with it, but I'm supposed to be. But that's okay because in your 20s and with those answers working, it's okay. And you, you, you go through this about birth to 20s or maybe to your mid to late 20s. It's concrete. That constructive faith works well, but then life happens. There's loss or there's disappointment or we encounter the world as being way more complex than we were told. We, you know, did you grow up thinking that basically everyone who doesn't follow Jesus, they're just kind of a jerk and they're easy to not like. And then you get out into the world and you're going, wow, these Muslims are way more pleasant than some of the people the church that I used to go to, the, 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 the people that I went to church with. This is not how this is supposed to work. Or, or you demonize certain people for their politics or sexual orientation or whatever, and then you actually meet people in the flesh and you realize these aren't demons. They love and they laugh and they hurt and they cry just like me. And some of them are navigating things with a lot more wisdom than I'm navigating. That's not how this is supposed to work. And so your world just starts to spin out of control because you weren't prepared 
for the fact that the God of redemption is working redemptively in everyone, whether they recognize his name or not, because he just loves humanity, which is why he sent his son into the world to take away the sin of the world. And so, so now starts, stuff starts to challenge us. We discover that, quote, the others are members of the same human family who are struggling with the same human condition as the rest of us. And once that happens, these easy answers no longer satisfy. And we're left with the choice. You remember what the great prophet David Bowie said? Turned away from it all like a blind man. I sat on the fence, but it don't work. So we either try to turn away, sit on the fence, hide our eyes, or some of us tragically think there are no answers here and we walk away from the faith completely. Thinking that Jesus perhaps let us down, but that's not true. But there is a journey that we're invited to. And so we begin to leave the faith of our authority figures and begin our own journeys of faith. And it can be quite scary. It is David recognizing that defeat Goliath, I can't keep wearing Saul's armor. I'm glad it works for you, Saul. It doesn't work for me. I've got to cast it off. I've got to go back to what I know. Well, what do you know? I know slingshots, man. I really know slingshots. And so David recognizes in that time, I can't do what's done before me. I've got to do what God's calling me to do. And so that's what happens at some point. You've got to leave the faith of your authority figures and go on your own journey. Will you still carry their lessons with you? Absolutely. Does that mean you're on opposite teams? No. It just means that you're going to approach faith and life differently than your authority figures did because you are a different individual than your authority figures. And so we begin to leave that, and it can be really, really scary to know what's out there beyond the faith of our authority figures. And this happens somewhere in our 20s on into our mid to late 30s. And here's why it's relevant to us, my friends. If a church is primarily about the construction stage of life, then it will be hard to find a safe place to grow. Because churches whose vision is only about construction are threatened by deconstruction and reconstruction. So they will swiftly come in to tell you and warn you against the dangers of your doubt and your questions in hopes of keeping you back down in the construction phase. And it's okay because maybe that's what God's called them to do and to emphasize. And so they're being faithful to their mission and vision. I'm not judging them for that. What I am saying though, if that's a church calling, it finds it really hard to find a safe place if you get moved into a season of deconstructing. And this is where this message is relevant to our community in hopes that you'll understand the kind of place we're trying to build is where the people who are in a season of joy and victory are welcome, but the people who are questioning their faith almost to the point that it's almost gone, they're also welcome to sit here and process that journey. And we wanna be a support to those people because I don't believe you have to leave evangelicalism in order to find Jesus but you do have to throw off Saul's armor in order to keep apprehending Christ. And we want to build a place where people can be invited into that process and discipled to the place of reconstruction, to where they understand the new solid foundation that God has created for them. Then we go into reconstruction. We move from the faith of organized religion to a faith, of, to a faith that is radically centered on Jesus. We let go of the non-essentials and cling to the one essential. We may have less answers, but we have more love. The sleeper awakens and we inhabit a world saturated with the grace and love of God. And once you peek into that world, you can't go back to the smaller one ever again because the smaller one simply will not satisfy. Once you know what it's like to wake up in a universe that is not antagonistic against you, but is dripping with the favor of God, that universe, you never want to leave it. You can't leave it. You can't go back. And if ultimatums are put on you to go back, you'll have to say, I know you mean well, but sorry, I guess you'll have to cut me loose because it is so much more liberating to live in that world of God's favor 
God's grace and those miracles that you were blind to. You were like Jacob. Surely God was in this place and I never knew. But after wrestling and prevailing, you see his touch everywhere. Forties and beyonds, you get invited into the season and the rhythms that continue to plumb the depths of God's love. In fact, as you reflect, you may see then that this redemptive cycle has been rotating in nearly every decade of your life. It's just, it's like concentric. It's here and it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper the longer you live. But you're no longer in despair over winter because you know spring always follows winter. You have learned from experience that resurrection will always follow death and there'll always be new life. Would the worship team would come forward and would you all stand with me? As we get ready to take communion together, I just ask you to take a moment to create some space to reflect on a few questions. Where are you in this journey? Can you identify where you are? Can you articulate it? And as you do so, can you articulate what it is specifically that you need for God in this current system, this current season? And if you can, then take a moment this morning and ask him for it. Ask him for what you need. Talk to spiritual friends about that journey and then walk life out in a prayerful community that's not judging and controlling you, but walking with you and affirming where it is that God's taking you according to his agenda, not their agenda. And those people are there. Your tribe is out there, but you're gonna have to reach out and be vulnerable. Share your story as we walk through it.